Good evening. Um, just before I get started, I have a confession to make. I have been part of the community for a while, and this is my first time in the evening service. <laughs> so maybe I can fill out one of those newcomer forms there. Um, but yeah, just, just really amazing to, to be here. I thought, you know, just if you're going to visit a place, you might as well come and do it properly. So I get the full experience to see you, to preach, and to hear. Again, uh, part of the benefit of preaching on a Sunday is that you get to hear that music twice in a day. Um, so really, really grateful for that. So thanks, Sheldon, and thanks to the band. <clears throat> amazing. So it's good to see you guys. Yeah, I know just in the beginning, uh, during the pre-meeting, uh, there was uh, that sort of who's coming for lunch was mentioned. It seemed to be quite a big theme and topic in conversation. People really enjoyed it. I just hope it's not a case of Mahi's full, Mahi's two. So just bear with us today. We are in Ezra, and so the, the chapter that I have for us today is quite a chunky one, a meaty one, um, and we will get into it now. Just let me set my timer so I don't keep you until nine. Jokes. Great. So um, I've been given Ezra 7 to bring to you guys today. We'll get into it a bit later, but just um, for those of you who are maybe new and sort of haven't been following, we'd be going through a series in Ezra, really around this theme of building and building strong. Um, and we come to a place where we've been sort of tracking the Israelites on a journey to rebuild their temple. Now, they had been taken captive, and in that process of being taken captive, uh, their temple, uh, sort of the epicenter of their community and, and their nation, really, was decimated. Um, and we've seen now that there was an initial cohort of Israelites that wanted to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild this temple. Um, and so they went in sort of what we would call sort of a second exodus. I think you're all familiar with sort of the first exodus out of Egypt, uh, led by Moses. This is sort of a second exodus for them, um, going back to Jerusalem to try and rebuild this temple. And so far, it's been a story of stop and start. Uh, they would start building, and then they would get interrupted, or there would be opposition, or people would say, hey, like what you're doing kind of reminds me of sort of, you know, new management in a company. You know, you're busy building something, you, you, you're building a project, people come along and say, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. What, what, where's the documentation for that? Where's the permission? Um, but anyway, they've been going back and forth, starting and stopping. And, and really, where we've gotten to now is this culmination of the eventual completion of this temple. Um, and what a moment that was. We've been following for, for five chapters what's been going on with them in building and being provided for, but then being stopped again, as I said. Um, but for the most part, it just feels like up until now, we've just felt like these people are building. That's all they're doing. They're just constantly, constantly building. And while this is an incredible moment for them, once the dust settles, questions start to emerge. Like, now that we've built the temple, now what? Um, is, is this it? Um, what happens next? You know, those are kind of the things. We've built up to this amazing place uh, at the end of chapter six, but there are 10 chapters in Ezra. So we think, well, what, what's going to go, what's going to happen next? And to answer the question of what happens next, well, the answer is pretty short um, up until the time we're going to talk about today, but not much. <laughs> um, in this chapter in Ezra, we fast forward about 60 years post them building the temple. And these 60 years have been pretty uneventful uh, for, for the Israelites, for them, those in Jerusalem. Generations would have passed. Um, those that are still around are, are sort of just going through the motions. Um, very few people are really connected to the law. Uh, they've just kind of, as I say, been going through the motions when it comes to God's law and his word and the temple. 
And so this got, this got me thinking in the beginning um, to say that we're always building, you and me, it seems like. From, from the moment we sort of are, are really young and kind of wanting to develop ourselves, we're developing skills, we you know, go to varsity, wanting to study, wanting to further that, maybe we get into our first job, we tend to be building our lives, you know, building our CVs and our experiences. And as we move on and we get a little bit older, maybe we're trying to establish our career, we're trying to build in new skills, or maybe we get to a point where we go, oh, I don't know if this is what I want to do, and then we build something new. Maybe you're even in a place where you've had a family, and that's something you want to build, and there's a legacy there that you want to have, or you're just trying to secure your security. And then for, this is more for the AM crowd, uh, the latter years um, is more about investing in the next generation, maybe, or just, again, securing yourself for when you stop working. But either way, we're all kind of building, and, and these are all good things, and they're necessary things, um, but have you ever done something or built something or achieved something and come to a place where you go, now what? Is this really it? Is this what it's all about? You know, is there more? What am I really building? You might get to that point. What is this all for? <laughs> I had a coaching client who we were sort of having a similar conversation and he said, yeah, you know, Cameron, I I've always wanted to build an airplane. And I was like, well, that's not something you hear every day. And he did. He rented a hangar and he built an airplane. And I said, wow, what an amazing achievement. What did you do about that? He says, oh, I just sold it because that was the goal and that I hit that goal and, and I just moved on to the next thing. So this sense of satisfaction kind of was there, but then quite fleeting and then moved on. Maybe that's not you, but, but maybe you're in a place where you find yourself kind of going through the motions, right? You're a little bit stagnant or you're cruising and comfortable uh, but at a deeper level, maybe you're unsatisfied, and even in the overwhelm of the world and life, you're actually quite underwhelmed. What I trust we can hear today from God's Word is His answer to some of those questions by kind of pulling out three ideas from this chapter about what it really means to build with God, what it means to build a life that God intended for us. So if you're keen, let's dive in, um, and let's go. I thought evening service, I'd get a bit of a whoop, let's go, but you know, that's Okay. Thanks to the three people in the front. Um, great. So we're going to jump into Ezra 7. Um, there's a little caveat here I just want to say. This is a meaty chapter. All right, okay. There's a letter here. It's got a lot of stuff in it. But don't worry, we'll navigate it hopefully pretty well tonight. Um, but also just what I want to say is when Kyle and Paul asked if I would be able to preach and help out in this series, I said, yeah, of course. And in the back of my mind, I was going, oh, I really hope it's not one of those sort of chapters where it starts with a massive genealogy, <laughs> okay? And it doesn't involve some weird letter from some king, because it can get quite, like, detailed. But nonetheless, I feel like God has a great sense of humor in that, so here we are. Um, and so we're going to start reading from Ezra 7, chapter, uh, verse 1. Now after this, after this meaning, after this temple was built, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra... Let's just pause there for a second. In the whole time that we've been going through this book, we haven't met Ezra. This book is called Ezra, and we haven't met him yet. Here we go. We're meeting him for the first time, which is a significant moment in this book. There are 10 chapters in this book, and we're in chapter 7, and we're only meeting him now. It sort of reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia, where King Aslan, or the Lion Aslan, who's really a central figure in this whole thing, only rocks up sort of towards the end of the book. Um, so anyway, be that as it may, here we are, grateful to meet Ezra. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, 
who just, again, I'm going to pause there. I think it's useful. I've underlined some names here. I've done this twofold, one to give you some context, one to give me a break from reading all of the names. Um, Sariah was a high priest in the temple just before the Israelites were taken captive at this time. He was the son of uh, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, and son of Zadok. Zadok was actually appointed to be the chief priest by Solomon, who was David's son. So you start to see that Ezra's lineage and genealogy is quite significant, all the way down to where we get to the son of Aaron. Now, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was there at the first exodus, and he was sort of the, 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 the founder or the, the, I guess, the, the, the start of this priestly line within Israel. And so this Ezra, I think, you know, had to make a distinction because I'm sure there were pretty, a lot of Ezra's, but this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord was on him. And I think what we can notice here is obviously his lineage, as I've said, it's a significant one. Um, And here we again, we see God's goodness in wanting to as we'll see later on, wanting to bring the word to the people in Jerusalem, wanting to bring the law back to them. And isn't it amazing to see God's goodness and his plan throughout all of these generations of priests to raise up Ezra at this time to rejuvenate and reconnect the people of Israel with God. And who better to do this this than Ezra? Uh, Not only did he have the lineage, but he had the chops. He had the necessary skills and competence to get this done. We look at the word there, he's, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Um, so again, not only was he from a lineage of priests, but he was also a scribe. And now if we look at the word scribe, in those times, it wasn't just somebody who had sort of secretarial duties of copying and pasting things and writing letters and doing all those kind of things. No, scribes were sort of lawyer level experts in the law of Moses and the word. And so this was somebody that had really deep competence Scribes often were people who in that time were very sort of the select few almost that could read and write, and they had a huge amount of influence in that space. They had favor in in the eyes of the king at that time as well. And what's interesting here is that, you know, Ezra's competence was in the law of Moses. It was in the law of God. Uh, And it makes me think, you know, we all have our area of competence. We all have something we've dedicated ourselves to in understanding, and that understanding whether we're a doctor, whether we're a, 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 you know, a technician, or maybe in tech, or whatever we are, we've got a map of what that looks like, and we're comp- competent in that, so we know how to function and how to get the best out of where we are. And so again, um, in our pursuit of, of building a life that God intended for us, um, we need to have an accurate map of what life is about and what's important And for you to see God and to know him and what he wants to do in and through you, God's word offers us that map for building our lives in eternal significance. You know, there's so much content out there and we almost become like scribes and on the latest podcast or, you know, the latest thing that's going on in the world, right? We we become like very, very competent at understanding all of that stuff. And we look for new ways to upskill ourselves in what we're currently doing. But what we're seeing here is that what's really important is also to be like that with the word in a lot of ways, to help us navigate our lives and to help navigate the kind of things we're building, not only for ourselves, but for the world around us. And I, I love uh, in Psalm 119, verse 105, your wo- word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
oftentimes things are confusing and it's actually quite gray out there like it is today. We don't see clearly. The word is the thing that's going to help us to see clearly the things we need to do, but more importantly, it's going to help us to see the author and the perfecter of life. So if we continue reading in, in, in verse 7, it says, and, and there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For the first day of the first month, he began up to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, okay, it was a five-month journey. Uh, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. And this is really important. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. At this point, we, three, we see three very important things about Ezra. Uh, firstly, that he had the lineage, right? He had the, the genealogy for somebody to be able to take the word back to the people of Israel, in people in Jerusalem, he had that um, skill, he had that lineage, and he had the skill. We've seen that he was a scribe and a priest, and he was devoting his life to understanding the word. But very importantly, he also had his heart set on what was really important. You know, oftentimes we rule ourselves with our heads, and we understand things, we get things, and we see them, but they don't drop down into our heart. Ezra had the lineage, he had the skill, competence, and the heart for what he was about to do. So we read that he set his heart on studying, doing, and teaching. And this is a great map for us and a great like, understanding around what will really help us to bring these significant things and build a life that God intended for us. And so when I read that, I think about you know, the question, what are you setting your heart on? What is your heart being set on? As a Christ follower, you know, where is that alignment? Where are you aligned uh, in where your heart is set? A lot of content out there about mindset, right? But where is your heart set? What is it set on? What is God placing on your heart? And so the invitation here to, to kind of help you in all of this is, number one, to study the word, right? To develop a scribe-like competence in God's word. Let Proverbs 3, verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Nice peace would be good, right, in your life. In Matthew, uh, Jesus saying, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's the sustenance there that we need. When we delve into it and we study it, that's what starts to come out. Like mining um, really helps us to get those gems. So study, that's what we've got to do. That's what we learn from Ezra, whose heart was set on the right things. The next is to do, right, to do the word. The word has to be lived, not only known for us to experience its full impact. A mentor of mine once said to me, Cameron, knowledge, knowledge is not power. That's not the quote you should be living by. The quote you should be living by is that it's the application of knowledge that is power. So whatever you're hearing, whatever you're studying, whatever you're learning in the word, think about how do I actually use that? How do I actually apply that? Because then we experience myself and people around me the full impact of that. Again, from the New Testament, James, when talking about being a doer, uh, this James 1, 22 to 25 says, but be doers of the word, not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. 
for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Kind of reminds me of sometimes my morning routine. <laughs> sort of like, oh, didn't look in the mirror. Um, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hero who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. So as you do, as you build in this way, you will be blessed in what you build. And the third part, what we can learn from Ezra, just here in this first part of this chapter, is that he's also set his heart on teaching it. Um, and I think for me, a story that comes up personally is I, you know, in Stellenbosch in my early days, uh, just coming out of high school, I was in Stellenbosch and had really recommitted my life to God. And we, um, we had quite a strong discipleship culture in this church. And we had a little purple book, which is called the Fundam- uh, Foundational, I can't remember now, it was many, many years ago. But we had this foundations book. And when you came to Christ, like the first person you were connected with someone and you go through the book. And we would go through it and it's like 12 chapters and you would really get like sort of the core of what, what, what decisions you actually made. Like what does this really mean and what does it mean for your life? Um, and then, you know, our pastor at the time was like, listen, if you've gone through chapter one, you can take somebody through chapter one. Like, you don't have to wait for chapter 12 to be able to walk someone through what you're learning and what you're experiencing. Because chances are the things that God is doing in you, the things that he's teaching you through his word is not necessarily only for you. We often read the Bible through that lens. Like, God, what are you telling me? What are you, what are you wanting me for my life and what I need to be doing? But oftentimes we miss that perspective of the fact that God might be actually teaching you something that might be valuable for somebody else to know. Okay, so at this point, Israel's heart is set on to bring the law, right, uh, God's word, um, but because there was this critical missing piece in, in the, pe- God's, the people of God's life that were in Jerusalem. They had this temple, and I kind of see it as like the hardware, you know, that had been done, that had been built, but they lacked sort of a software install, right? There was something in there that wasn't quite there. Um, they had lost their way a little bit. So again, in the first part that we've gone through now, we've just seen how much emphasis God puts on the word as the thing that's going to activate and rejuvenate his people. So next, we're going to start going into a point in this chapter where we, where we read a letter. Um, and so, you know, we have Ezra and his heart is set on teaching the law in Israel, and we know why. Next, we read an incredible letter from Artaxerxes, who was king uh, of Persia at that time, Babylonian king. Um, which essentially gives er, uh, Ezra the green light now to go and do this thing that he set his heart on doing, go back to Jerusalem. But he also, you also see in the letter, and we're going to read it, he gives him everything he needs to do this. Like this is like, like a pagan, non-believing king. This, again, like we saw in chapter 6, is another re- repeat here of just being able to say go and do what you need to do. Look, there was a little bit of like a selfish motive in that for Artaxerxes, but we will get to that. So we're going to read this letter, and again, I just want to put a little bit of an asterisk here and a, and a warning. There's a lot in here, okay? All right? So I just want you to bear with us as we go through it. What I have done is I've sort of like split it up so that we can have some breaks, so that I can have a break and you can have a break from consuming all this content. All right. So here we go. Verse 11. <clears throat> this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, nice way to introduce yourself, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace 
And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in, the, in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hands. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs and with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given to you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Okay, we're gonna take a break. Okay, Whew. good. So here we see quite an incredible moment, right? He's, he's saying, go, go back, but I'm gonna give you everything you need. There's gold, there's silver, there's wheat, there's drink offerings, everything you need to go and do what you need to do for your God, go and do it. And also, if you really need it, you can dip into more cash if you want from the treasury. I mean, this is just uh, quite an insane moment if you think about it, considering the temple had already been built, right? So the letter now goes on with more specifics about the kind and quantities of the provisions being given to Ezra and those that are going up to Jerusalem. So here we're starting to see the provision of the king, right, to um, Ezra and those that are going up with him. And I, Artaxerxes, verse 21, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever, again, there's that word, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God, of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver. This is like 3.4 tons of silver that he's giving, um, that has to be transported, by the way, it's about 50 million rands worth, right? A um, hundred cores of wheat, a hundred bars of wine. This is, this is the place where I pause for the Cape Tonians, for us. hundred bars of wine. It's about 2,200 liters, right? I think if Cape Tonians were in charge of this, that wine would never get to Jerusalem, but be that as it may. A hundred bars of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king, and his sons, there's the selfish ambition there. Uh, we also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, and the other servants of the house of God. He's saying you, you, you're not allowed to, uh, I'm giving everything, don't, don't tax them on any of this stuff. You need to let them have free passage in terms of like the material possessions they have to build what they need to build. Let them do it. And then not only does does the king give Ezra stuff and material things, but he also gives him authority, right? And he goes on, and we're nearly there, people. We're nearly, nearly there with the end of this letter. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province of beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. So again, Artaxerxes is saying in, in this place, in, in this, these territories, 
go ahead, you know, spread, spread that word, teach the people in that space. And then in sort of typical kind of Persian or Babylonian style, uh, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Well done, everybody. You reached the end of that portion of the letter. Very proud of you on a Sunday night. You should be cozy in bed watching Netflix, but you're here. So when we see this, uh, we marvel at the provision of this king. The provision of things and supplies. We're, we're kind of taken aback by this external provision, the provision of materials and gold and silver. We see that you know, God's plan in all of this was to bring the word and the law to the hearts and the minds of his people. And the message for us in this is that God is deeply interested in your inner life. And there's so many external things that we receive from God and that could God, I suppose, could give us, you know, unlimited. But really what he wants to focus on is your inner life. What he wants to do is to bring his word into your heart so that you can live life as he intended and a life that is with him. In fact, when it comes to the temple, we remember the words of Jesus in John chapter two when he was asked about the temple. He said, I will destroy this temple and in three days raise it. Yeah, again, Jesus kind of, changing our perspective on this temple. You know, he's saying, you guys normally focus on this external stuff, but I'm wanting you to focus on the eternal. And the challenge in terms of getting to a place where we're living and building as God intended, living with God in that way, the challenge is that we get stuck on fixating on the external. And we miss that God's provision is actually sort of multidimensional. We focus on things we can see, most, and mostly things that are quite temporal, and then we wonder why we're kind of dissatisfied when we get to the end of a project or end of a thing because maybe we're focusing too much on the external. Second Corinthians 4 verse 16 reminds us and Paul says, when thing, the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And God's in the business of the eternal building, right? not necessarily the only, the temporary building. And so it's useful to quickly just look at three ways that God provides, right? We often think about it on the external most of the time because you know, we're human beings and we like to see what's in front of us and we like to touch and feel it and believe that that's real. And so what happens is we often, even in our prayers, we tend to default to the external, the seen things. You know? This could come in the, in, the, in the form of material possessions or God's provision in terms of money or an open door or a job or something that is very, very tangible to us in that way. You know, open doors and the favor of men. In the letter of Artaxerxes, we see this in, in, in abundance, and we love that stuff, right? Isn't it great that all those testimonies are filled with stories of the external stuff that God has provided, and he does, and he's gracious that way, and, and that's good, but that's not the only way. So we have external provision, but we also have internal provision. You know, this is, you, you were born with a, a, a certain focus of attention, and you have skill sets and abilities and resilience and strength. These are the internal provisions God has given you to navigate the life that he's called you to. These are things you don't even actually, actually think about, but these are being provided to you by your creator, and we need to think about those things. These are also, you know, when you pray for strength in times of need, this is the internal provision of God. Even the peace of God is the internal provision that he provides to you. And I hope as I'm thinking about this, you're, you're thinking about where am I asking for things and where am I placing my focus of attention? And of course, um, the third part, the third thing, the third provision we have is eternal provision. And this sits in the unseen a lot of the time, right? 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, his divine power has given us 
all things that pertain to life and godliness. So the unseen provision is obviously, you know, we can read the word, but, you know, in fact, the word is a person. And, and the eternal provision that we've been given is Jesus Christ himself. That's, some, that's the starting point for God when he's thinking about building. He's building from an eternal perspective. Jesus is our ultimate provider, the provider of a way to God. I mean, do you want any other provision than that? The provider of an eternal life with God, and he sacrificed himself for that. And even, I think, as Steph said, even while we were in rebellion against God, he still provided a way for us to be with him. And so our typical sequence in our lives is to go external, internal, and then eternal. So if external's not working, we're not getting that, we'll go, okay, cool, God, give me this. Then if that's not working, okay, finally, you know, let's align with the eternal perspective. But God's default approach and perspective is to go the other way around, oftentimes. But he, the, the amount that he's provided for us eternally is incredibly significant, more so than any external thing could ever provide for us. And what the crux of it again is here is that we get stuck in building and experiencing it we get stuck in, we sort of are not experiencing building and experiencing life with God that he has in mind for us because we're focusing on the external and the temporal. Instead, we need to pay attention and orientate ourselves around the eternal. This is how we build with God. So again, some of the takeaways here from this section is to say that the extravagant provision provided by Artaxerxes to Ezra provides us with a glimpse into the extravagant love and provision of God for our inner and eternal lives. It's also worth noting again, and I mentioned it, that Artaxerxes' motive was not pure in giving these things. It was more out of self-interest and self-preservation. There was a section in the letter there, can't tell you what verse it is now, but really what he was saying is, let's do this lest the wrath of God come against me and my sons. So he wasn't really doing it out of his goodness of his heart, so to speak. And so if we think about God's motivation and his provision for us to reconcile us to himself and to restore our place with him, that's real provision. Like that's the kind of provision we need. And lastly, that in his deep love and goodness, he wants to make his home in our hearts. John 14 says, he will come to, we will come to them and we will make a home with them. And there was this temple, but now that's changed. No longer does God reside in a temple, in a building, like the one in Jerusalem, but he comes to beautify our inner lives, to give us access to the eternal life. And, and in that process, everything else externally is thrown in. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, I love what he says here. He says, look, to your, look for yourself or to yourself or to the external, I would even say, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. All the temporal stuff decays. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. So finally, we've seen in the beginning of this chapter, we've got a bit of an overview of Ezra and why he's important and why sort of he was the one to go and do what needed to be done. And we learned some lessons from his approach and his heart in that space. Then we looked at this letter, we saw that, wow, not only did he have that heart, but there was this provision, and we were realigning our understanding of provision and what that actually means for us to help us, again, build strong, to build lives and build things that last for eternity. And so at the end of this chapter, we need to look at, at Ezra's response, right? We had an introduction to Ezra, we had this letter, and now we see his response to everything that's been mentioned before this. 
And just those four words in the beginning of verse 27, blessed be the Lord. That was his response. The God of our fathers who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. Ezra's response was one that wanted to bless and honor God and give thanks for him for the incredible things that he's done. Again, if our focus of attention is only on the external, we are going to be incredibly susceptible to massive fluctuations in how we feel about God, right? how we feel about life. But if we're focusing on the internal, we keep aligning ourselves to that perspective, we, the natural outflow of that is gratitude and praise and blessing to God. The second thing, the, the way that Israel responds to this is he says, uh, further on there, he says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. We can read this chapter and sort of kind of breeze over all of this stuff, right? Like he had to travel 900 kilometers and spend five months doing that. I don't want to spoil alert, but he kind of starts making the journey and realizes, hold on, there's no like Levites with us. <laughs> He's like, oh, we left some people behind. We need to stop, delay, wait. You know, you think, you, again, the temptation when you read these things, like when you read autobiographies, is to think, oh, that was pretty easy. <laughs> that happened quite quickly. But can you imagine having to embark on a journey like this to take all of those supplies? I mean, just logistically to handle that must have been fairly interesting, to say the least. But also not that, not only that, but maybe the expectations, you know, that were, were, were on him. He had this thing in his heart, but, ooh, he's got to do it. There's this king, Artaxerxes, which you can see if you, if you don't end up on the right side of Artaxerxes, you get impaled and a whole lot of things happen to you. So there's maybe even fear around that. Maybe there's uncertainty and doubt even within himself. He was skilled. He had the lineage, but, you know, he's human. I'm pretty sure there were some doubts that might have crept in there. And so even though he had the God's favor, which we, which we know, and he had the favor of the king, Israel still had to take courage. And the old French word for courage is cur, which is heart. He had to take heart. He had to go into his heart and figure out and, and kind of just lean in there. I mean, this whole idea around I took courage wouldn't have to be in this chapter if it wasn't necessary. If it, wasn't, if it was easy for Israel, he wouldn't have said that. And so sometimes the things that we get that are put on our hearts and that we have on our hearts are not necessarily easy things. You know, but if we dial into the eternal provision and internal provision God has given us, we can work with God to get it done. So I suppose it's one thing to set your heart on something. And it's another thing entirely to go and follow through and pursue what God has called you to do and what he's put on your heart. My favorite definition of courage that I often use is that um, if you think, fear, think about fear, fear is wetting your pants, okay? And courage is doing what you need to do with wet pants, all right? <laughs> okay. And so again, my question here is, in what ways do you need to take courage? I mean, maybe there's something God has put on your heart in the, you know, the, the worries of life and the hecticness of everything, and that's kind of like become quite distant to you. But if you re-engage with it, maybe there's some courage you have to take. I'm not saying you have to do an Ezra move and move a whole lot of people, like five months travel and all of that stuff. I'm not saying that. It can be big or small. Any movement with courage moves you in a direction where God can start to use you and start to expand his work through you. And as we kind of land, we come to a close this evening, 
Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity in your heart. It's part of who you are. You're born in this way. God has set that in you. Nothing you can do about it. That's happened. It's in your heart. And he has made the first move to rejuvenate your heart from wherever you've been and to give you the life that you can not only build a meaningful life in this life, but that you can also be part of building a kingdom that will last forever. If we don't have eternity baked deeply into our lives or into your life, if we don't have it baked in at a deep level, you'll always come up thirsty and unsatisfied. You're always going to be trying to fill that dissatisfaction with something that's temporal. So the question again is maybe a few things like think about, and I'm not going to ask you for any input right now. You can think about this and meditate on it. What have you set your heart on? What is that thing that God has put on your heart? Maybe you're in a certain place and you know, every time I'm there, I feel something. God is telling me something here and I need to act on it, but I haven't done it yet. What is your, do you have that sense of mission and purpose? And this is not meant to be like a rah-rah motivational speech about get your purpose and your mission and all of that stuff. But I think it's really important to say, yeah, if I keep on just focusing on the temporal and I do that, and we do have to do things right here and now, I get that, but we can infuse it with this eternal perspective. See, often our visions and our hearts are weakened by living in a distant way from God and his word and kind of going through the motions like I spoke about right in the beginning when it comes to him and his plans. We, we sort of kind of get a bit dull on that. And I love what C.S. Lewis, again, I'm going to quote my man here because I love his work so much. And, I, and this is a, a staggering thing for me to read as well. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant, what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When we get into the eternal perspective, when we get into that in terms of how we build our lives and living a life that God intended, we tend to be distracted quite easily and too easily pleased and then realize, oh, that's not satisfying and then kind of move to the next thing. But again, the call here is to kind of get into that eternal perspective and that's where ultimate satisfaction is. And so in the beginning, one of the questions I said is like, you know, you may come to a place where you go, is there more? Like, is this it? Like, is this it? And I'm very happy to tell you and I'm, it fills me with joy to say that there is more. Ultimately, the ability to live life as God intended is predicated on your relationship to Jesus Christ. And early on, we spoke about Ezra and we spoke about, you know, his lineage and his skill and his heart and how that, though the combination, would bring the Israelites back into the kind of life that God had for them and the life that they needed and the life that they were made for. And if we go now and we look at Jesus, in terms of his lineage, son of God, tick, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty good lineage to have, right? So we know that, that, that that's what he's about. In terms of his skill and his competence in understanding life and the word, well, the Bible tells us that he is the word, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. One of my other favorite authors, Dallas Willard, this isn't on the slide, Dallas Willard says, Jesus is, was and is the most intelligent person to ever live. He was the author of life. He was there in the beginning. He knows what life is all about, right? Most intelligent person that's ever walked the face of this planet. 
And as far as his heart is concerned, well, his love for us drove him to, to die for us. And so that you could be and I could be reconciled to the Father, to that delightful presence, to the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe. So who better? <laughs> who better to invite into your life and into your heart? Who better to follow than Jesus? And not only is Jesus the word that's come to live in you and with his capability and his heart for you and your life, but he is also the provision, right, that will truly beautify your life and give you everything you need for all eternity. And you need to let that knowledge and the promise of that ignite and refresh your heart and activate deep courage within you to do the things that God has put on your heart. So I'm gonna ask the band to come up as we uh, close out here. And I, I guess at the end of these things, there's, there's two groups of people that, that I wanna talk to um, before we close out in worship. And I guess that's, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, right, and you're checking, checking this out, you're sort of coming in here, so what's all the fuss about? I would just invite you, you know, in all your seeking and all your researching and all your thinking about all the different options that are out there, in all of that, I would encourage you to look intently into Jesus. Study him. You don't have to be a Christian to learn about Jesus and study him. Just get in there and give it a chance to see what all the fuss is about. And maybe even take a step of courage to pick up a Bible and open up the story and to see what comes out. And to the Christ followers in the room, Consider, you know, with the enormity of what God has done for you, what have you set your heart on? What is God doing in your heart? There's a story in the, in the New Testament, you know, Jesus had died and two people were walking along a road and they met a man. And he was walking with them and he came to eat with them and they were trying to figure out, like, who's this guy? And talking to him about life and... And then they found out that that was Jesus, right? Jesus had died, he had risen again, but he had walked with them on this path. And I love what they say. And they said, you know, wasn't it, wasn't it him that made our hearts burn within us as he was walking with us? So I hope you take with you today or tonight or this evening that God is, yes, he's interested in your external, but he's really wanting to get into the heart because that's the epicenter of transformation, your identity. And if he has that and, and you have that with him, he promises to help you build a glorious life, not only today, but for all eternity.